going to be this morning in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6. And coming to the end of John chapter 6 this morning. And uh, as a result of coming to the end of chapter 6, the end of that discussion of Jesus on the bread of life, which he began towards the beginning, and then we'll see more of the, the follow-through of that as it continues and uh, what he has to say. We've seen, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, that John's purpose in writing is so that we will find life in Jesus. He's shown us Jesus' relentless presentation of the gospel. It's been his purpose, so that we will know what the gospel is and what's at the heart of it. And this morning, Jesus gets very much to the crunch of that. And so my thoughts this morning and the message this morning is, is straightforward and and fairly simple in regards to what that is. But as John has been relentless in presenting the gospel, we are reminded to ask ourselves, what is the gospel? Perhaps most clearly, the description of that is one of the earliest Christian creeds recorded for us in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. In that short statement, we, we see the, the truth of what the gospel is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that his death and his resurrection are what secures our salvation from sin for all of those who will believe him. And so we are called, as John does through the gospel and as Jesus does through this gospel, to believe in him. We have very clear presentations of that, like John chapter 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So to believe Jesus as Savior means we must acknowledge that Jesus is Savior. And if we're going to acknowledge that he is Savior, it means that we must acknowledge that we must be saved from something. There is a reason to be saved if we're going to acknowledge that he is a savior. And so Paul says something like this in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, of whom I am the greatest. There, Paul is admitting why we need a savior. He admits that we need a savior because we are sinners and sinners need saving from sin. Rescue from sin, so it involves repenting and believing in Jesus. Regardless of how you believe God calls to salvation, all believe that we're responsible for accepting his gift, for believing Jesus died for our sins. Now that very, what many of us will look on and say, that very simple idea of the gospel that Jesus is the Savior from sin, that he died to save us who are sinners, and that his death and resurrection is what saves us from that sin. That very simple idea we also know to be extremely polarizing. 
and dividing in its effect on people. Paul writes to the Corinthians about this and says, But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, which would essentially be, be us, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul says the, the gospel is dividing. The Jews see it as a stumbling block, something they fall over because here everything they had thought about the Messiah, Jesus is turned upside down and it doesn't make sense. And so they rejected him. And the Greeks look at it with their wisdom and, and those outside of Judaism look at it with their wisdom and their understanding of the world and say, well, that's just ridiculous that a God would come to save his people. It doesn't make any sense at all. But to the people who believe, the people who know, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Peter tells us that this is more than just about a message, than just something we tell people, that it's deeply personal, that it all revolves and centers around the person of Jesus in this. So Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So as we look at the gospel, we're not just looking at some message, we're looking at the person of Jesus. And to those who have seen Jesus and believe Jesus, he is precious. But those who don't believe Jesus find him offensive and hard. He is a rock of offense. What is it that makes this such a polarizing message? Because we know as we present the gospel, and as we've seen through this gospel even, that the gospel of, of salvation from sin is a free gift. But that free gift is demanding. There are conditions that go with this free gift. That is, it requires submission. It requires that I give my life and I believe and I repent to Jesus. Which means this, it requires that I admit that I am a sinner. As free as this gift is, it is of no value unless I admit I need it. Because I am a sinner. It's divisive and polarizing for those reasons, but it's also divisive and polarizing because the gospel is a very narrow message. One way only. Jesus and Jesus alone. This is why that, that statement, one of the five solas we sung about before, is so important. Christ alone. It was a call to all the world that it doesn't matter anything else. The church is not going to save you. And Jesus plus the church or Jesus plus your works or Jesus plus anything is not what you need. Jesus alone. That is divisive and offensive. Because it means we must believe Jesus only and I can't do my own thing or go my own way or believe what I want to believe. Now, as we come here to John chapter 6, which I'm going to read in just one moment, we are getting close to the end of Jesus' ministry. People are beginning to realize the implications of what Jesus has been preaching. They're beginning to realize the truth and the expectation that Jesus has on them from all he has said. And that's what this whole statement of him being the bread of life is about. 
Let's read from John chapter 6 and verse 60, and we read through the end of the chapter, chapter which is verse 71. So after he has told him he's the bread of life, explained what that meant, here is the response to his message of being the bread of life. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What? And if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before, it is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Let's pray before we continue. Our Heavenly Father, we come to a division. We come to a turning point place where Jesus brings us to choose. Are we going to believe he is all we need, the bread of life? Or will we turn back to our own ways, to follow our own pursuits? In ways this morning that only you can do, speak to us as believers, encourage us, strengthen us, guide us. For those that don't know you as Savior, who do not believe, draw them to your side. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here is Jesus has been speaking to, him, to, uh, to them about being the bread of life and what it is about. He has told us that he is God. He is the one who came down from heaven. Not like the manna that came down and disappeared and was only temporary, but the bread of God that came down from heaven. He is the bread of life, the bread that we need for life, the only bread that we need for life. Without him, there is no life. There is nothing. There is emptiness. There is death. There is end. And we've noticed several times that Jesus always preaches towards or teaches towards action and obedience. It's been very clear through the Gospel of John, and this is no different. And throughout the, the world and throughout the Gospel, we have seen three ways that people respond to the message of Jesus. Much like the parable of the sower. If you remember the parable of the sower, Jesus says there's a man who sows in his field and he throws out the, the seed and some falls on, on stony ground and no ground where there's, there's no growth. Some falls on stony ground and some amongst the weeds and some on good ground. All illustrating to what the word of God does in the life of people who hear the word of God. And it's no different here in the Gospel of John as we see it. We see some who are like those who fall on the hard ground. They scoff and they mock and they reject. There is clearly no life to them. 
This we've predominantly seen through the Jewish leaders as they have scoffed at Jesus and sought to kill him and rejected him outright. Then we see some like the, the stony ground and the, the weed-covered ground. People who have a shallow or a temporary faith. They follow for a while, they like Jesus, and it appears that there is life, but in the end we realise there is no life and it withers away and dies. There was never really any life to it at all. And then there is true life, where the seed, where the word of God takes hold and takes root and grows and produces true faith. So I said the religious leaders showed us the first response. We're going to see the other responses today. The shallow temporary faith and the true faith. What is it that makes a true disciple? A true follower of Jesus? My question this morning, as on the screen there, is what will you do with the bread of life? What will you do with the bread of life? There are two options, two ways that we're shown here about what people do with the bread of life. And the first is this. Many walk away from Jesus. They hear what he has to say. They hear what he says about himself, that he is the bread of life, that he is what we need, that he is the only way of salvation, that he is the one who alone can save us from sin. And they hear his claims and they walk away. We're told here as we read through this passage in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They turned back. They turned back. They had been following Jesus. They turned back, but here we see they left. They left him. This is a really confronting moment. Right? And I'm not... That there's, you know, I try not to be a boring preacher, but there's not a lot I can do with this. It's confronting and it's hard. And we've got to take it as it is and see what Jesus says here. This is a confronting passage. Because I want you to notice here that the people that leave... The people that left, we are not talking about the religious leaders here. So we're not talking about the people who have been following Jesus around, antagonizing him and scoffing him and mocking him and rejecting him and trying to kill him. That's not who we're talking about here when it says that they left. These people that leave, these are the people who just days before chased him around the lake and then chased him back again. That's who we're talking about. The people who were following him, who wanted to hear what he had to say. And what we learn about these people and about this description is this wasn't just faltering faith. This wasn't just a struggling moment of doubt. It says these people completely stopped following him. They turned back and followed him no more. So this isn't a moment where somebody's going, oh, it's hard, I don't know what to do, and my faith is a little bit shaky, I don't understand. And notice that it's not just a few. Many. Probably most. Left him that day, went back to their homes, back to their lives, just as they had before they met Jesus. 
It's not like the apostles. We know the apostles struggled. We know the apostles had, had d- just moments of despair. In fact, after Jesus dies, they go fishing. This is different. This is not the same as struggling faith, as, as moments of doubt. It's different. It's this experience here which caused me so many questions about what God does in faith and what God does in the life of salvation. What do we say of these people? What do we say of these people who followed Jesus, who, who were there and are gone? Should, should, we, should we say they're believers because they, they professed to believe once, even though they're not following? What do we say about them? What, what should we do with people like this? What Jesus is very clear to tell us here is that these people that turn back, that left, are not true disciples. It seems very clear from the passage that these aren't true disciples. John, in his description here, uses the term disciple loosely. And we know he's using it loosely because he makes a contrast by using a description of the apostles that he only uses, I think, one other time in his gospel, and that is to call them the twelve. Most of the time, he'll talk about them as the disciples. But here he makes a distinction. There are the disciples, and then he turns to the twelve. So John is making a distinction here. And using the term disciple in the very largest, loosest sense. A disciple, in general, is someone who has a sense or is a a follower. And these people had indeed followed Jesus. So in that sense, they were disciples. And to everyone around, to all that looked at him, I mean, these are the people who ran around the lake to follow him and ran back to follow him, wanted to know what he had to say. They were the ones who filled houses so that they could see him do miracles. So to, to everyone around, these people appeared to be disciples of Jesus. They all looked and said, well, there's someone who is following Jesus. And it's not a unique event here. Sadly, in my own experience of Christianity, I can say many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. I have seen that far too often. They appeared to be disciples. They acted like disciples. They followed like disciples for a while. But the time came when faith was revealed to be too shallow. They were distracted by the entanglements and the strangling of the world. And we found there was no life. Sadly, Many believe that shallow discipleship like this is true discipleship. That it doesn't doesn't matter. We're told that because they once believed it, it must forever be true. That if they said at one time, I believe Jesus, well then that must be true for the rest of their life no matter what happens. Even worse even worse than the fact that they might believe that because they professed once that they believe forever, even worse than that is that many of these were told they were true disciples. 
Oswald Sanders, in his book Spiritual Discipleship, points out a very true statement. Today, one may be regarded as a Christian even if there are few, if any, signs of progress in discipleship. It was not so in the early church. Then discipleship involved the kind of commitment Peter spoke about when he protested to the Lord, we have left everything to follow you. When the Bible talks about discipleship, that's what it means. Someone who follows with their life and their truth. Today there is too much profession and not nearly enough confession. So they turn back and in their turning back, they reject Jesus. They reject Jesus because, as we have seen so often, they are following selfishly. Why did they go to Jesus in the first place? They went to Jesus for the miracles. That is, they went to Jesus for what they saw. They went to Jesus, some of them, for hope. That is, what they wanted from him. They went to Jesus for the benefits, what they could gain from him. Perhaps, like so many others, they went to Jesus out of guilt over how they felt, or maybe they went to Jesus out of duty or pressure from others. And so they followed for a little while for their own selfish desires. They didn't truly believe that he was the Messiah. They didn't truly believe he was the Savior because as far as they were concerned, he wasn't meeting their expectations as a Savior. When people realize that the only way to have their felt needs truly met is to acknowledge our sin, he doesn't seem so appealing anymore. When we come to Jesus because we, we want Jesus to meet some need we think we have. And sadly, this has been far too, too prominent in, in the modern church. Come to Jesus, he will fix your marriage. Come to Jesus, he will help your depression. Come to Jesus, he will rescue you from addiction. Come to Jesus, he will make you happy. Come to Jesus, he will give you community. And so we've reached out to people based on some felt need... And when that felt need wasn't met by their expectation, they left. Because they came to realize that that's not what Jesus was really about. He wasn't about just meeting what we feel was our great need. And in that moment, he's not so appealing anymore. And so, as we're told in verse 60, these people are offended by his words. They are offended by his words and they refuse his offer. It wasn't only that they didn't believe, but they found his words offensive. So it wasn't just, oh look, I don't like that anymore, or I'm going to go a different direction. The one who they followed, they're now saying, offends me. People are offended by Jesus in so many ways. 
Verse 53, John 6, it says, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's a statement of exclusivity. These people are offended by Jesus because Jesus says, No other way goes to salvation but me. That can't be true. What about all the other people? What about people who haven't heard about Jesus? Jesus says, me, me only. People are offended by Jesus' words, as we see in places like verse 65, and several places through John 6 we've seen, of the sovereignty of Jesus. That he rules over all, that he has control, that he has, has the rights over life. People are offended, as we see even in verse 51, where he says, I am the living bread who's come down from heaven. They are offended by the deity of Christ. He's not God. Good man can't possibly be God. Verse 62, Jesus says, implying that if they were to see him even ascend up into heaven, they still wouldn't believe. They're offended by the exaltation of Christ. Perhaps one of the greatest things that offends us so much in verse 63, it's the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. We are offended by the very fact that Jesus says we are completely unable in our own way to find salvation. No, I'm pretty sure I can do that, I say. I'm pretty sure I can keep good enough in my life that God would have to accept me. No, no, he won't. Well, that can't be a good God then. We're offended by Jesus in all these ways. We have seen that this week. We have seen the offense of Jesus in our world this week when a man has lost his job because he dared to believe what Jesus said. Where he dared to believe that what the Bible calls sin is in fact sin. And the world said, that's offensive that Jesus would say something is not right, that's offensive. It hurts my feelings. We still see it even this week. So here we see the very harsh reality that the gospel is going to drive people away. They are going to reject. They are going to walk away from Jesus. They're going to hear the gospel. And maybe they hear it for a lifetime and then finally it it, it clicks like these people. They've heard it for for years as Jesus has been preaching and then finally they recognize what Jesus is expecting is not what I'm prepared to give. And they walk away. But then there's the other side. There is the other side where we see people following Jesus confidently. They confidently follow Jesus. Verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Here we are met with people who have decided to follow Jesus. Some saw Jesus and walked away. And here Jesus has a group of 12, knowing that amongst the 12 there is still one who is going to reject. 
And that's made very clear. But he turns to them, and as Peter so often does, he speaks for them on their behalf. Where else are we going to go? Where else? They decide to follow Jesus. They decide to follow Jesus because they recognize the uselessness of leaving him. Where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of life. So if we leave you, Jesus, where are we going to find life? It isn't anywhere else. It's only in you. A true believer, a true disciple recognizes nothing else is worth leaving Jesus for. There's nothing else in this world that satisfies like Jesus. Oh sure, from time to time we're tempted and even toy with, with things because we think they might find satisfaction. But we realize and we recognize, a true disciple recognizes that there is no satisfaction in anything but Jesus. It's the humility of recognizing I need Jesus. Seeing that we've been, been truly satisfied by Jesus. Like I've said, it doesn't mean that we don't stumble and fall. It doesn't mean that we don't ever stray. Said Peter, Peter denied Jesus three times the night he died. The rest of the disciples ran away. After Jesus dies, and in between that, that time where he resurrects and they don't know what to do, they go, well, what do we do? I guess we just go fishing again. So it's not that we don't stumble, it's not that we don't fall, it's not that there aren't times where we find ourselves in distress or dissatisfaction sometimes as we, we wonder what God is doing. But what is the difference between the many and the twelve? The twelve came back. When Jesus stepped into their life again, as he pursued them, they responded and they came back. And they loved him and they recognized, again, the truth. It's interesting here that Jesus doesn't run after the deserters. Like the many leave. And Jesus doesn't spend the next months running after them and going, no, wait, come back. I'll, I'll, look, I, can, I won't talk about that as much. I'll, I'll do this. Or, or just, just come back so we have a, a big crowd again. Jesus doesn't go around wasting his time chasing the deserters. What we find from this point on is Jesus still preaches the gospel, still reaches out, but he focuses on the stayers. Now that's not anti-evangelism. Jesus' mission was entirely different. So why did he do that? Because these 12, 11, were going to be the start of the church, which reaches the whole world. Jesus knew what he was doing. If you truly find Jesus as the bread of life, what can compete with that? Nothing can. And so in the uselessness of leaving, he also expresses his reason for staying. Why do they stay? Because Jesus has the words of life. That was enough. Jesus has what gives life. The words of life. They decided to follow Jesus because they believed Jesus. Verse 69, what a powerful verse verse 69 is. 
verse 68, where he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe, we believe and are sure. They believed him fully. Fully believed. Just, just like as, as Philip is speaking to the Ethiopian in his chariot as he goes, and, and the, the Ethiopian wants to believe, and, and the conversation goes, and Philip said to the Ethiopian, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what Peter is saying. I believe Jesus is God. The mark of a true disciple is true belief. Belief in his word means submission to him. Submitting to his word. Don't just believe what I want about him, but believe what he says about himself. And believe what he says about me. Recognize he's true, he's right. I am a sinner. What he says about me is true. And what he says about himself is true. I need him. They believed him fully and they believed him confidently. So Peter doesn't just say, we believe. He says, we believe and are sure. Confident. Steadfast. Now that doesn't mean we're always perfect and that we never fail. That's not what it means to be sure. But we're quick to return when we're taught. It means, just like Job said, Long before Jesus came, for I know my Redeemer lives. And as Paul confesses after Christ, for the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he is able to keep me. When we see Jesus truly and we believe him fully, we are fully convinced. He is the Son of God. Jesus' message is, is clear. He offers you salvation from sin. But his offer can only be received... His way. That's it. He offers salvation from sin. But you must take it the way he offers it. And no other. His offer is that he is the only way. He is the only way. And so in regards to the question I asked at the beginning, I asked this question again. Have you considered what he is saying? Have you considered what Jesus is saying to all of us? Have you considered what that means for you? Jesus tells us that he is the Son of God who came and died for sins and resurrected for life. Have you considered what that means? 
And then what that means for you. If what he says is true, there are vast implications for you. Eternal implications for you. So how will you respond to his claims? Will you be like the religious leaders we see in John and scoff, mock him, reject him? Or will you be like so many of the people that followed him here that follow along with Jesus as long as you like the journey until you can no longer follow his demands? Or will you be like the twelve who truly believe? Where else am I going to go? Only Jesus is worth it. Only Jesus has what I need. Everything else is a cheap imitation that falls away. This morning, if you are uncertain, if you're uncertain about where you fit in that, let's, let's talk. Come talk to me. You can talk to me today. Or you can make it a time to arrange to talk to me another time. Or speak to someone that you know here that believes Jesus and you know I know I'll get the truth from them. And find out what Jesus is truly saying. I posed a question earlier about what we should do with the people that went away. How should we consider them? Should we consider them as believers who believe because they professed? And just assume they're believers or should we look at them and say, well, no, they've rejected clearly and the answer to that question is not an easy one to answer in the great scheme of things, but simple in the practicality. Regardless of whether amongst all of these people there is true belief which falters or gets distracted or empty belief and that never believed in the end doesn't matter. What do we do with people who profess to know Jesus as Savior, who profess to be disciples but no longer walk his way, no longer show any fruit of salvation? What do we do? Two very simple things. Talk about the gospel and speak about Jesus and pray for repentance. Now, why do I say pray for repentance? Because it does not matter where their relationship is with Jesus if they're not walking with him, they need to repent. If they are truly a believer and they have fallen from discipleship, they need to repent. If they were never a believer and need to see Jesus as Savior, they need to repent. So talk about Jesus and pray for repentance. And let God work in the soul. What will you do with the bread of life? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for even as, as the people here say, the hard words that you give. They are not easy to take in and they are confronting and they are troubling But they are also 
uplifting as we listen to the confession of Peter. Because for those of us who believe, we echo the same heart. God, where else will we go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. So let us seek Jesus with great passion and pursue him for his glory so that as we've spoken and read today, that our feet would be beautiful as we spread the message of glad tidings of the gospel. That our lives would shine forth as true disciples which show that Jesus is worth it all. I pray for those this morning here that for one reason or another are uncertain about their relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bring certainty and guidance into their life as we speak, as they hear the gospel. That you would draw them to yourself, that no matter where they be at this moment, you would grant repentance and life. Pray these things in Jesus' name.